0: Yes, lots of prayer required, so thanks for taking part in that. (laughs) So we're continuing in this idea of the story of God, and where God's story is dipping in, and we're experiencing his story as history is being written. And we're trusting and hoping that you're reading along with us uh, in this reading plan. It's pretty, pretty, pretty sweet, actually. This week, if you kept up, you got to read through what we call the Old Testament books of history. So we had the Pentateuch last week, and now this week the books of history. Now there are more history books than those that you touched on this week. Acts in the New Testament is a history book, and some would argue that the Gospels are, and at least Luke is a history book uh, that tells the story of Jesus. But we were reading this week from uh, Joshua to Nehemiah. So if you were to take hold of a Bible like we did last week and grab that section of Scripture, go to Joshua and then to Nehemiah and hold those together and you've got the books of Old Testament history. Roughly a span of 9 to 10 centuries. So you have Joshua in the conquest of Canaan, which was 1300-1400 B.C., depending on the scholar you're reading. And then all the way to the rebuilding, the exile and the rebuilding of Jerusalem, which was four or five hundred years before uh, before Jesus. It includes such events as, like I mentioned, the conquest of Canaan. So you come, Jerusalem, or Israel comes, excuse me, Israel comes from the wanderings and then begins to take the land that was promised to them. You have, after that time, you have the period of the judges. So Israel was led by gifted judges who had gifts of discernment, and God was actually leading through these people. So you have warrior leaders, and then you have judges who were also often warriors. And the first female leader of Israel, who was a warrior woman, Deborah. I hope you read about Deborah. And then you have this season of kings. Israel demanded a king. We're we're done being led by God. We want a king. So you have Saul, and you have King David. David's a major figure, of course, in these readings. King David, his son King Solomon, you have the ministry of the great prophets, especially the prophet Elijah that we read about uh, this week. You have Israel's exile, so they quit being faithful to God, and they're exiled. They're, they're put, put out, uh, dominated by another nation, and then Ezra and Nehemiah coming from exile back to Jerusalem to rebuild the, law, the wall, to re-establish the teachings of of God and try to reconcile and rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the spiritual lives of the people. And these events and many more, all in that book of Old Testament, that section of Old Testament history books. There are themes that are moving through this theme of God's story intersecting with our stories. In fact, us living out God's story and this whole movement toward Jesus. And one of the themes that I saw this week was really interesting, and I wanted to focus on that this morning, and I'll begin by asking you a question. We'll have a little fun with it, but we're going someplace, so trust me on this, and here's the profound question. What do King David and Bruce Bochy have in common? That's the question that gets us launched. Now listen, you know I'm a Dodgers fan, right? I mean, I'm a massive, hormonal, crazy, since I was a kid, Throw stuff against the wall, Dodgers fan. I've been praying this year that God would give me the gift of not hating the Giants. Because I actually had this prayer. Lord, baseball season's starting again. Baseball season and baseball is ruined for me because of this rivalry. I've been a Dodgers fan since I was a kid. Grew up in the Bay Area. It's never been fun time, baseball season, for me. So, I'm serious. I need to not hate the Giants. I want to just enjoy baseball again, so can I please just root for my team, enjoy the brilliance of the Giants and not hate them, especially since so many people I'm called to serve love them. So, you know, I need a little help being a faithful pastor here. And he's been answering that, we're working on that prayer, but he's, he's, he's been mostly answering that prayer. But I want to ask a question, and so I couldn't put Bruce Bochy up in a giant uniform. I mean, it's had to take a half step. I took a half step towards you, okay? That's a half step towards you. But the question still, and David's looking good there. The question is, what do Bruce Bocce and King David have in common? And here's the answer. They had the same cartoon hero, hero when they were little kids. Did you know that? Underdog. In fact, these guys are the poster children, poster men, for the role of the underdog. Very successful underdogs, both of, both of them. Now, we know what King David did. I mean, he was underdog, and he goes and he slays Goliath. The army's watching, he slays He's the underdog when he walks down to the valley to take on the giant. But Bochi is the King David of Major League Baseball, this Dodgers fan must admit. If we could trade you managers right now, I'd do it in a heartbeat. And throw in Puig to go with it. I'd do it in a heartbeat. Do you realize that the Giants, they've won, did you know they've won three of the five last World Series? (laughs) 60% of the, do you know how hard it is to win a World Series? 60% of them, these guys, have won. And here's the trick. Not in one of those years where they're the best team in baseball, going into the playoffs. Not one. They were never ranked number one seed in any of those. In fact, last year the Giants were literally the worst team to make the playoffs. They didn't get into the last day or couple days of the series. They lost. They had a 500 record last year. They were the worst wild card team to have to get a play in. They lost as many games as they won. Bruce Bochy from that dugout was brilliant, and he played the role of the underdog so well and always has played it so well. I've got to give him his props. He, he didn't know it, but he was living out a great illustration of one of the primary themes that's woven in these history books, the idea of an underdog. In fact, I've entitled this message The Underdog God. And here's the theme you see. when you Maybe you saw it. You get story after story after story, event after event after event in these books of history, right up to the building of the wall, where God seems to love somebody who really should not have a chance. In fact, you have situations where God felt like Israel had too much going for her, And so he wanted to make it more difficult for her before she went and took on whatever challenge she was taking on. And the reason was, you have this thread all through these books and these stories, the reason was he wanted to make sure that there was no question about the true reason she was being victorious. It's not hard enough, I'm gonna make it harder. Why? So there'll be no doubt, the real reason you did well. No doubt. Who's responsible for your success? It's like in the first gathering we were singing and I was praying during one of the songs and I was praying the Lord's Prayer. Something in the song reminded me of this. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. For yours is the power and the glory. It's all yours, Lord. And I was going off on this prayer while the rest of the congregation was singing. And that's the thing he's trying to remind us of all throughout this text with this theme, the Giants won, be in spite of their weaknesses, and in spite of my prayers. But we'll let that go. We'll let that go. <laughs> but in God's story, as we read it this week in these books of Old Testament history, He seems to prefer human weakness. He's drawn to human weakness. He choo- seems to choose weakness to show His power through our powerlessness. He's attracted to powerlessness, and he loves to insert himself there. This theme of yielding to and trusting in God as his story is being written into and through human history, as his story is being written into and through human history. This story is going someplace. This novel is different, in a sense, because we already know the ending, and the ending the way things are going to be one day, is drawing all of humanity and all of history toward it. And this great, fantastic crescendo of God's victory and everything that's wrong being made right and everything that's broken being made whole and everything that's lost being found and everything that's discarded being loved. But God chooses to stack the deck against himself while we're in that process in order to remind us, in order to prove his trustworthiness, his power, his authority, and even his love. Let me give you some examples of that from this week's reading. Key examples of this underdog theme that God seems to love. These are just just some high points. With Joshua... You saw that Michael read the beginning of this Jericho story during the middle of our music worship. Joshua leads Israel and takes on the, city, the double-walled city of Jericho. But you remember that those walls fell without an aggressive, militaristic attack against them. Nobody constructed great armaments and great tactical tools to lean them up. and The, the walls fell in sort of in an underdog way. They fell as a result of The army marching around, the army shouting, the trumpets blowing, and the walls fall. If somebody comes to me and says, Greg, exciting, here's our strategy for making the walls fall at Jericho, I'm thinking I don't want in on that deal. That looks like a planned failure. And here's God. You could do it so many different ways. An earthquake would have worked. Just knock them down and let us know and we'll go. But he shows this, he, he, he involves Israel in this absurdity and then shows power through human absurdity. And I love the fact that the only people in that whole city that were spared were people who were members of a harlot's family, a throwaway. The Lord says, wait, time out. That one there that everybody's been using, talking about and despising of all the people in here, she lives. In fact, all of her family and her household, they live, everybody else, it's over. He loves weakness. He's drawn to those who feel like they've lost To You've got Gideon and his army. Remember the story of Gideon and his army? We read about that in this reading this week. Where they're going to go down and take on the Midianites. The Midianites were actually... Uh, joined with some others as well, and they have an army that's described in Scripture as being as numerous as locusts. In other words, it's too big to even put a number to it. Go ahead, count a swarm of locusts. I dare you. That's how the Bible describes the size of this army. Ominous. And Gideon has 33,000 soldiers. That was no small army. But God says, oh, as large as locusts, count them like locusts. You've got 33,000. Good luck. No, he doesn't say that. He says, wait, 33,000 is too many. You beat them with 33,000, it won't be really obvious who actually beat them. Go ahead and trim it down. Do you know that by the time they were done with the trimming, they had trimmed that army by over 90%, down to 300 soldiers. And then God said, okay, those are crazy enough odds for me now go win. And they do. And it's as though the Lord is saying, so who really did that? Who made that happen? Yeah, I don't think Gideon's going to be beating on his shield with his sword saying, I'm a brilliant commander. I did this. No, it must have been the Lord. Against all odds, winning with both hands tied behind his back. That's what God seems to love to do. Shows it with Gideon. Then you've got this shepherd boy, David. You know, when he was originally anointed, sort of secretly, but he wasn't even there when all the sons of Jesse come down and the prophets go into anoint one as the future king. And they don't even think to call David to the meeting. He's the youngest guy, he's off taking care of the, of the sheep. And so the prophet sees all of these different older brothers and says, no, none of them. You sure you don't have another son? Well, yeah, but you, you gotta be kidding me. That one? That ruddy little adolescent? I got one more, but of course you couldn't mean him. Bring him down and David is the one who's anointed. It makes no sense. And he goes down and takes on Goliath. Remember, this, there's a part of that story where King Saul, who's not brave enough, he wasn't singing the You Make Me Brave song. He wasn't brave. Oh, we could go into that story. But he wasn't brave enough, but it, he, he at least offers David, who volunteers himself, his armor that won't fit him and his sword that he's never practiced with, and it's too heavy and do you understand the odds? You just don't know what was at risk. Remember Goliath's challenge was, look, why waste our time fighting? You send your superstar down and I'll go down and the two of us will fight in the valley while the armies watch. And if your dude beats me, we'll submit to you. And if my, I beat your guy, you submit to us. Those are really high stakes is God out of his mind, and he sends this teenager down to fight with no armor against a soldier who is what, seven, eight, ten feet tall? I forgot what the statistics were. He was a giant, and all of this, and he had a sword bearer with him. He even had an assistant with him down there, you know, to hold here. Here, now try this sword. Now try this knife. Now try this gun. David comes with a slingshot, no armor, and a couple of smooth stones, and lays waste to the dude. And then, it's, this is pretty gory by today's standards, but it's pretty normal back then. Then he goes and he takes Goliath's own sword, and he wasn't practiced with it either, but obviously practiced enough, takes him by the beard and cuts his head off, and drags it up and hands it to the king. That's winning with both hands tied behind your back. King David... Another example of this underdog theme. When God preserved the prophet Elijah, in our reading this week, we see that Elijah is he's hungry, he's tired, he needs some sustenance, and so he calls to God. God's no problem for God, right? He's got all sorts of wealthy people that have plenty of food in the cupboards in all cities all around the world. He can send Elijah to any of them. You would think he would at least pick somebody with a job to send Elijah to, to give Elijah something to eat and a place to rest. But who gets chosen? A widow who has a struggling son. They're both feeble. And when Elijah comes and sees the one that God chose, he says to her, hey, fix me something to eat. And she says, all I have, all I have left is a handful of flour and a little bit of oil. That's it. I have nothing else. I was going to go cook what amounts to a pancake as a last meal for my son and me before we died. That's all we have. And Elijah, in great pastoral sensitivity, says, fix me something instead. (laughs) And her, in great faith, does it. I mean, she must have been thinking, we're going to die anyway, might as well bless a prophet. And the scripture says the flower never ran out, the oil never ran out, and she was cared for. But my question is, God, of all the options you have to take care of, why do you choose the one least likely to succeed when you measure her resources? Because I love showing who's actually doing the blessing, who's actually displaying the power, that's this thread that's coming around, preserves Elijah. And then when Elijah later on is, oh, this is one of the great stories of all of scripture, there's this false god Baal and Israel's gone over to Baal and worshiping this pretend god, and sort of the popular god of the time, and Elijah, there's gonna be this competition, so Elijah calls them out, says, tell you what, here's how we'll figure out who the true god is. We'll go up on the top of that hill, And all your prophets of Baal can meet me up there, and they can put together a sacrifice. But don't bring a match. No matches. I'll put together a sacrifice. And whichever sacrifice is consumed with fire from heaven, we'll know that's the true God. Okay, we'll take that challenge. So they go up there, and all the prophets of Baal, it says, are gathered around. They put their sacrifice together. And they start doing their gyrating and their dancing and their prolonged, verbose prayers and nothing's happening. So they start cutting themselves and shaking all over the place and bleeding all over the place and begging Baal to come and consume their sacrifice. Nothing's happening. And you've, I love this. You've got, the Bible puts it so gently. But Elijah, the Bible shows us, is standing off to the side talking trash to these guys. That's what he's doing is trash talking. Because Elijah says... Hey, maybe your God is asleep. Maybe you caught him on his day off. Like you just picture this? All these hundreds of prophets and da And Elijah's back by himself. And he actually says, the Bible smooths it out. But here's what he actually says. Maybe he went into a cave to go to the bathroom. Maybe you caught him in the middle of relieving himself. That's the trash talk, Elijah. The pro- so that means trash talk can be a holy thing. So go ahead and use it. But just sparingly, okay? 'Cause my dad used to say, "Son, if you spit up in there, it's going to come back down and hit you in the face. So be really careful about that trash talking thing. But that's up to you." Then Elijah says, "Are you finished?" Cuz there's no fire. He no fire. He goes over and he builds a sacrifice. He says, "This sacrifice is to Yahweh the true God." He offers a relatively short, concise, but profound and simple humble prayer. But this is God who likes to tie both hands behind his back before he wins. So the scripture says that Elijah took water. He had water poured in a trough all around where this fire was supposed to come. And then he took water and poured it all over the sacrifice. And the text goes out of its way to say he soaked the wood. Have you ever tried to start a fire with wet wood? You get a bunch of smoke and no flame. He soaked the wood. The wood. And then he stepped back. Prayed his prayer. No matches. Boom. Fire was lit. Because God loves to win when he shouldn't win. He loves to win through people who have no chance of winning. That's a thread that's going through this text. Shows it in Elijah. And of course... He shows it pointing to the very thing, the very event that these events we're all looking at. Even when God pushed the button to implement his plan to save humankind through Jesus, to redeem us, to rescue us, to fix us, to strengthen us. How did he do that through Jesus? Jesus. Jesus, he took on the form of a human being, came as a baby, submitted himself to the instruction of his parents, learned a trade that gave him blisters and broken fingernails and all that kind of stuff. And then he was a young, an adolescent, submitted himself to that weird station in life. Remember how strange and difficult that was for most of us? Jesus went through that too, on purpose. And then he became a teacher, teaching things like peace and forgiveness, and love your enemies, and love The Romans, who were oppressing and occupying you, and if they want to go one mile, you go one mile with them, go two miles. He taught those kinds of things that were tender and gentle. And then in Philippians 2, it says that he came and took on the form of a human being, the form of a servant, the form of a bondservant, becoming constrained by a human body, was not enough for God. He took on the form of a servant in that human body. Then he allowed himself to be arrested. There's an old hymn that says he could have called 10,000 angels, and he could have, but he didn't. And he allows himself to be accused, crucified, and he looked on that cross like the plan was going nowhere. They heard him cry out in agony. Because God loves to win with both hands tied behind his back to show his power, to increase our trust and our sense and discipline of yieldedness. Of course, Jesus is raised from the dead. And so what looked like a weak victory turned out to be a very strong one. But all of human history and all of God's story, you know, is being sucked toward that in history in this novel that God is writing where we know the ending but everything between then and now is is being drawn and in some ways defined and certainly affected by what will be true on one day when it finally comes. Where all things that are wrong are made right, all things that are broken are made whole, all things that are evil are done away with. Where justice is pure and beautiful and people know God and his laws are written on their hearts. All of this story is moving toward that, the culmination of that. But God's doing it by means of tying his hands behind his back. He loves it. He must be entertained by it. Oh, wait till I show him my power this way. No, no, Gideon, that's too many people. Go with 300. Are you insane? (laughs) Some have said. But when you're done winning that, guess who gets the glory for it? Now let me give you a corrective. Because we see God's preference for the underdog and his enjoyment of showing his power. And when his power, when, when he's not enough of an underdog, he seems to make himself more of an underdog. But there's a correction for that because we can get sloppy in our thinking and misinterpret some of what that means by way of application. So here, a corrective. God chooses to work through the poor in spirit, not the poor in motivation. He loves winning when both hands are tied behind his back and even behind our backs. But that doesn't mean that's different than him loving to find somebody who's not going anywhere, not trying anything, not doing their best, not giving God their best. He loves to work through the poor in spirit, not the poor in motivation. He'll work with the poor in motivation. He chooses the humble, not the slothful. So let's not misunderstand what this theme is that's being found through the Old Testament. He'll still work with the slothful. He still loves the slothful. I mean, he loves me. But that's not what we're talking about here. This is not a license to do nothing, accomplish nothing, set no goals, sit around and get calluses on your rear end. But the poor in spirit, those who know where the real power and success comes from, Man, he gets a kick out of working through you. So I have another question, and doesn't have anything to do with Bruce, Bruce Bolche. But it's a question that we should ask with every sermon or teaching. Two syllables. So what? So I see this theme. I see God cutting an army from 33,000 down to 300 so that he can show who really has it. But so what? What does that that mean for me today? How does that touch my life? And what I want to do with the time that I have left, these last seven or eight minutes, is offer some more questions. But these are questions that I'm going to offer to you. And then I want to invite you to sit in silence and ask the Holy Spirit, Hey, God, Holy Spirit, Inform me of something here. I want to reflect on that question. And we'll ask the question, and I'll give you a minute or two to be silent and reflect on it. If you want to take some notes, I would advise it to come back to later on. But in light of this theme, let's try to find the relevance now of that, the application of that for our own lives. And here's the first question. I'll ask it, and we'll sit in silence for a little bit around it. Apparently, you are enough for God. But is God really enough for you, like we've just sung? Is God enough for you? What are you aware of right now that needs to be surrendered with no expectations so he can truly lead you in spite of the odds? What are you aware of in your life? Is God really enough for you? What are you aware of that needs to be surrendered in spite of the odds with no expectations? Is he enough or not? Should be silently stewing on that. (laughs) And if you're aware of something. You think I'm going to say, okay, surrender it. I'm not. I'm going to say this. If you're aware of something, pray a prayer that asks God to walk with you on a journey towards surrender. Take me there, Lord, because I, I want to go there, but I'm dragging my feet. Question two. You can come back to these later. I know I'm not giving you enough time. Here's the second question of the so what. Have you been considering yourself to be too insignificant, too much of a loser to ever be used by God? Either I messed up too much, and so I'm sort of on the sidelines for the rest of my life. I'll love God. I'll love Jesus. But he could never use me again now because according to these history books and that theme we see in them, you're not too much of a loser to ever be used by God. You're not too vacant to ever be used by God. In fact, you may be something to, someone to whom he's drawn just so he can show the extraordinary power and force of his love. So what I want to invite you to do, if that's the case with you, it might not be. But if that's the case with you, Go to prayer silently right now and affirm the fact that you are beloved by God and he can use you. That's what's actually true. Affirm the truth in prayer. Last question, but first a comment. I've heard the phrase, I didn't, this isn't original with me, but I think I heard it in a talk one time, that some people are born on third base, get up, start jumping up and down and slapping high fives as though they just hit a triple, but they were born there. With that in mind, let me ask this question. What victories and accomplishments have you experienced in your life that you need to, be, that need to be acknowledged as God's doing with your cooperation instead of your doing with God's cooperation. So what promotion, what raise did you get? What shining child did you raise? Whatever it is that you would think, these are the shining moments in my life. What victories or accomplishments have you experienced that need to be recognized as God actually being the one behind it even though you had a lot to do with it. I don't mean to imply we have nothing to do with the outcomes of our lives. We actually do. But this is an army of 300 beating a much larger army any time we have a victory in our life. What needs to be acknowledged as God's doing with your cooperation? Let him speak to you about those things and acknowledge them. Just thank him very humbly. Well, I mentioned Underdog earlier. How many of you children of the 60s, by the way, watched Underdog? I mean, so you remember the, the, his motto there's no need to fear. Underdog is here. Absolutely. Was, that was one of the great motion picture moments of Hollywood. There's no need to fear. Underdog is here. <laughs> and the irony of that statement was lost on me as a kid because when I've got a crisis, If somebody says to me, good, we'll send the underdog, I'm not thrilled. But that irony is not lost on me as an adult follower of Jesus. In fact, God seemed to have had that very theme in mind when sending the Apostle Paul to do great things in the world in the development of God's story. Because Listen to what he says. I'll remind you of what was written by Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. You'll see the same theme. It says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, a weakness. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. I delight in insults. I delight in hardship. I delight in persecutions. I delight in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because God is drawn like a magnet to weakness, to situations where he should lose, but through us, gets to win. Would you stand, please, and we'll be dismissed with this prayer. Lord, I don't have to tell you that we've come in to these doors today with all different life experiences. I know that some of our dear friends are going to bury a mom this weekend, have come together from Japan and all different places to bury their mom. But in that situation, in that weakness, or weaknesses like it, Pray that they would, in the middle of their grief or whatever struggle we bring into this room, remember that you are standing by to show your strength in ways that make no sense. But we'll still take them even though we can't make sense of them. Ways that bring peace, comfort, determination. Others have come with deep worries. I mean, they were, some of them expressed as people came up forward here earlier, wondering how in the world anything good is ever going to come out of that. Is everything stuck? Is anything ever going to change? Pray, Lord, that you would give them the ability, the divine ability, that's the only way we can have that ability, to lean into that challenge and that weakness. And to remember what Paul said, when I am weak, he is strong. And to get to the place where we're able to say, Christ is enough for me to know that I have his favor, to know that he looks at my life and gives me an affirming nod. That's enough for me. Give us strength from that realization, oh God. And let us be a people that's different than the people among whom we live. Let us be a people of faith. That's our request, Lord. That's a good request, isn't it, Lord? Grant it, please. Now, church, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep your head above water. May the Lord lift his countenance to you. And when he lifts his countenance to you, may you see a smile on his face. And leave here today hearing him say when he looks at each one of you as an individual something like this, because I'm sure he says it taking your cheeks in his hands, saying, this one, I'm especially fond of this one.